Like what your fly fishing flies totally tell about did. you. Well, that was kind of the tulip, <laughs> the tulip bubble thing. Oh yeah. There was all this prestige in having the right specific kinds of flowers, and they would spend a fortune to have them. I um, one of the things that puts me to sleep faster than anything else is this one documentary series on Netflix about specifically Italian gardens. <laughs> Monty Don. Yeah. Are you kidding me? I love that one. It puts me. We I love it. it. It's so but it, soothing. But it's the most calming thing, right? Like I yeah. always fall asleep. Oh yeah. But yeah. like yeah, yeah. He, I love it when he talks about how like they would have all these, they would compete with each other to have like the coolest, oh God, rarest Charles. flowers. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> we, we watch it like. It is what we put on when we're just like, we just need something chill in the background. Like maybe we're working or maybe we're trying to like wind down after watching something intense. But yeah. Mm -hmm. But do you know Monty Don, the guy that hosts that? There's also a French Gardens one, by the way. We also, Netflix was like, by the way, since you watch this. Since you're boring AF, here's some other other shows you might like. He does this show that's this like. This is Charles. And this is Rachel. From BNV Radio. This is Design Goggles. One of the most common questions in this city is, what makes you a Seattleite? Since there are so many newcomers and the experience of living in Seattle has changed so much in the last few decades, it's often a question left unanswered. If there's one thing we can all agree on between newcomers and Seattle vets alike, it's that Seattle is beautiful. If you've been in Seattle for any amount of time, you already know that sentence doesn't really do the experience justice. Beyond taking in Mount Rainier on a clear day, the true beauty of the Seattle experience is difficult to describe. No matter how many hikes or museums, rainy winters or stunning summers you have under your belt, being a Seattleite is something difficult to capture. A few months back though, a book was released called Seattleness. Between the covers are roughly 200 pages of detailed infographic design, somehow both quantifying the experience and describing its beauty in an abstract way that captures what being a Seattleite is in a way we've never seen before. We're excited to have with us Natalie Ross, one of the authors of Seattleness, to chat with us both about the book and how design brought it to life. Natalie, thank you for making time to sit and chat with us. You're welcome. So are you a native Seattleite? No, I'm not. I'm actually from Iowa, and I'm going to be moving back to Iowa in one week. What? Yeah. Show's over, everybody. (laughs) Bye. That's it. Well, okay, so let's unpack this. Yeah. How long have you been in Seattle? I've been here about 10 years. Okay. So was it from Iowa you moved here to? No, it was a a long journey through the Midwest. I'm from Iowa, but I've lived in Chicago, Twin Cities, back to Iowa, Mm -hmm. back to the Twin Cities, and then out here to Seattle. How does your experience in Seattle stand out as different than the other places you've lived? It's really different, actually. There's a sense here that you're on the edge of the country or in the frontier land. A more Wild West mentality in some ways, mixed with that Scandinavian passive-aggressive silence. (laughs) So very different, I would say. Starting my career here as a landscape architect has been really amazing. There's a lot of opportunities. People, I think, let you make the path that you want, and I love it. It's been a really great experience here. Do you find Seattleites more attuned to the value of landscape design? Yeah, definitely. It's kind of a natural characteristic of this place that things don't die. I mean, I don't know if you've ever been to the Midwest in the middle of winter, but it looks dead. Stuff dies. It's yeah. it's brown. Isn't that on the Kansas license plate? <laughs> stuff dies. Kansas stuff dies. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Exactly. So, I mean, it's just in the nature of this place to grow and flourish and be green. And I think people just naturally love that. I mean, that's why they come here, because it's so beautiful, like you said. What brought you here? Actually, my husband went to the University of Washington for information science, which is another ex- 
exceptional field out here. So why are you leaving? Well, you know, <laughs> babies, family, uh, expensive childcare, that, that kind of like thing. An important thing. No, cares about. You know, <laughs> my husband and I have talked a lot about the fact that we're preaching to the choir here. We're living amongst people that are so similar to us, and that feels really good. But we feel like we have more of a obligation to go back to the place we're from and try to make a bigger difference there, especially oh, in the political climate that we're in. So we're going to start our own business. We're going to try to be part of local government. I mean, that sounds like really idealistic. No, that sounds fantastic. Yeah. That's, no, that's really encouraging to hear. Mm-hmm. It's funny. I feel like I'm going to approach this interview backwards. On the, <laughs> the cover of the book, the extension of the full title is Seattleness, a Cultural Atlas. Mm-hmm. And I guess my first question to you specifically about the book is, do you think you could do this book about any city or could it only be done about Seattle in the way it was done? I feel like it could be done about any city. Because like we said in the introduction of the book, it's really about stories. We tried to find interesting stories about things, people, places, and those exist no matter what the city looks like, even if it seems like a wasteland or, you know, Main Street, USA. Mm -hmm. I think those interesting stories just follow people wherever they go. So it would have to be able to be written anywhere. So maybe you could do another one wherever you go. that would be fun. That would be fun. Light bulb just went off. Radio listeners couldn't see the light bulb, but we did. (laughs) So how did the book start? What kicked the whole process off? So... My two writing partners, Jenny Kempson and Tara Hatfield, are both in the design profession, and we all kind of knew each other through the Seattle connection, even though they don't live here anymore. So we were all, at least at one time, landscape architects. Oh, interesting. Okay. Yeah. And Jenny was contacted by Sasquatch Books. They had an idea already to do some kind of map book about Seattle. They had done a similar kind of book about Portland. And so they contacted Jenny because she's got a background in landscape, architecture, design, geography. And so she kind of fit the bill. And then she brought us both in to help her out. So that's cool. The publisher approached you. Mm -hmm. Oh, okay. Interesting. Yeah. So the genesis of this podcast in the very, very beginning was we wanted to talk about because all these new people are moving to Seattle. And it seemed like all the new people were asking what it means to be a Seattleite. And it forced a lot of the native Seattleites to also ask themselves what it really means. Mm -hmm. And it seemed to be something that was very much in flux and very hard to put your finger on. And even the people asking the questions and doing the work didn't necessarily know the answer. And we ended up in a spot where it's like we might be closer to what that's like, but it's something that's hard to put in words. And the idea of a book that was 10% words and then 90% graphics I thought was brilliant. And this is, in my opinion, one of the closest representations of what it's really like to live here. I know it's ironic we're doing a radio show about a (laughs) book of graphic design, but (laughs) was that always the strategy? Was it always going to be a heavily graphic book? Yeah, I think because we are all visual people and come from the design background, Mm -hmm. that was something that we always thought this should be. And we wanted it to be beautiful first and foremost. You know, you see a lot of map books or like weird Washington or yes. you know, things like that, that they are informative, but lack something in sophistication. And so we wanted this to be able to stand on its own visually 
if somebody flipped through it, we wanted them to feel like, wow, this mm-hmm. is high design book. This is something that I could put on my coffee table. And then secondly, we wanted them to be able to keep looking at the book over and over as something that constantly brings something new. And so there's maps in there, like the one about the World's Fair mm-hmm. that's so incredibly detailed. And I think the font size is four. So <laughs> there's there's a lot to dig into there. Oh, and sure. I think you could open it up like once every five years and find a lot of new information in there. So well, and it feels like they could be posters, too. For sure. Yeah. You know, each page could be a you know, beautiful poster on the wall. You found it interesting for a city that does so much navel gazing, how not limited in quantity when it comes to books or information about Seattle. But the description of the Seattle experience is just like shrugs. Yeah. Like it's like, well, we can tell you about the history. We can tell you about the hikes. We can tell you about, you know, specific stories, like you said, about the World Fair. But nothing brings it together quite like this book. Is there one graphic in the book that stands out for you as being the most iconic? Yes. Earlier you asked kind of how we conceptualized this book and how we got going. And we got together in a cute cabin that was, you know, very Seattle on the sound (laughs) with the fog rolling in and got out a pizza butcher paper and just post-it notes and ideated. We tried to come up with a bunch of different concepts and culled those and then tried to figure out if there was some kind of thread between them all. And what we came to was that we wanted it to be like a portrait because it's sort of understood that a portrait is just a snapshot in time. It's not something that is the end all be all of a person. And we wanted this book to be like that for a city because of course, once you put a number down or statistic down, it's gonna be totally different the next year. And so with that kind of idea, I guess the book didn't feel like it was so hard and fast. It could be a little bit more free flowing and maybe more conceptual almost than just maps and graphics. And so the graphic that I think really represents that isn't even an infographic or a map. It's a um, young Chinook woman wearing abalone shell disc earrings and anchoring a portrait of place while the North Cascades range and Yamasaki's iconic arches stretch up word in the ever-present northwest veil of cloud mist and distant calls of seabirds <laughs> so <laughs> it was kind of just trying to set the scene of how we felt like the different ideas and places could come together to try to make a portrait fantastic yeah yeah it's funny seattle in a way it's a collection of impressions right yeah it's difficult even to describe how would you even describe the shape of the city yeah which is something i have really <laughs> a hard time doing when people ask well where do you live in the city geographically and i'm like i want to say the center but i'm like but there's not really a center it's like the answer to any question about being in seattle is like well okay that's a little hard to talk about it's just between two skinny bits of land between pieces of water yeah right yeah i usually say something like you know the hilton logo (laughs) it's like it's this weird like i feel like i always describe it based on what water you're near yeah right that's a good way to think of it but i want to say my first year and a half i never knew what body of water i was close to (laughs) like i didn't know even when i was crossing a bridge what direction i was going in well that's on you charles <laughs> it's totally true but in a way even that experience like there's a disorienting coming from elsewhere did you experience that too when i moved here i was constantly disoriented in what turned out to be a very pleasant way every city i'd lived in before i moved here i knew exactly where i was all the time based on where the water was mm-hmm. or if it was a grid and there was no water i knew i was going north or south mm-hmm. and here both of those things are kind of like 
fluid. When you first moved here, did you have experiences like that? Yeah. Well, I was a geographic analyst when I lived in Chicago and I drove around one of those like Google cars. Oh, cool. Not Google, but something right. like that. Mm-hmm. And so I navigated Chicago extensively and that was sort of the city that set itself in my mind. And so Lake Michigan is east. And that's a really big navigational feature. So when we moved here, the water to me was the sound. And so mm-hmm. I kept getting flip-flop because it was on <laughs> right. the west. And right. so I always thought I was going north when I was going south. Everything was opposite. If you're in Magnolia, it's south. Exactly. And yeah. if you're in West Seattle, wait, it's <laughs> it's east. Yeah. yeah. So I was turned around for years. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Same with mountains, too. Right. right. I mean, so you have to know which body of water and which part of it if and which out. mountain range. Yeah. And if the mountain's out or not. Mm-hmm. I still get that confused once in a while. Somebody visiting will be like, oh, which mountains are those? And I'll just be like, the Olympics? <laughs> <laughs> well, every time I'm driving around this city, I always think of that Jimi Hendrix song, Crosstown Traffic. Because it's like, <laughs> if you can't figure out any of the geographic features, you can always know that when you're going east or west, you're going to be sitting in traffic. <laughs> Was there a calling of graphics you wanted to do but couldn't? Or did you find yourself needing to add more? Yeah, we had so many maps that we wanted to do. We tried to avoid repeating things that had already been done. So there was a indigenous language map that we thought was really, really cool that a group of people had done from the University of Washington and wanted to kind of adapt that. But they had just done such a great job that it felt like, oh, let's not reinvent the wheel. Some other more experimental ones we thought about were doing a smell map, which would have been cool. Whoa, Um, that's cool. you know, we had a limited amount of time and inventing methodologies really wasn't part of the, you know. No, but that's such a great idea. Yeah. Save it for like a scratch and sniff poster in the future. Well, that's the first thing I thought of. I was like, a scratch and sniff poster. Yeah. People think I'm joking when I tell them that because I'm from the East Coast. When I tell them, oh, yeah, I get off the plane and literally you smell like pine and, (laughs) and like lilacs. And you just you just smell like the world and it's all natural. And when I go to the East Coast, I can literally smell and taste that pollution and nobody else believes me. Yeah. That's such an important part of being here. Yeah. Oh man. Interesting. Well, it can still be done. You'll just have to do a book that's just a bunch of vials. Yeah. <laughs> that's just that's a good idea. Too. I know. <laughs> the smell map. Dive in. <laughs> yeah. That's so great. Something I've been really curious about in general lately is the new importance data has taken on. We have the ability now to call so much data quickly. Where did you source a lot of the information that you got? Did you have to go to like a hundred different places or did you find one gold mine? We did go to a lot of different places to find data. Of course, we tried to use as much publicly available data as possible. There were some data sets that were private that we had to get permission to use. Hmm. There's a lot of data out there that you have to pay for. Yeah. So we didn't do that. I'm curious, what was the data that there was a paywall for? Some of the data that was kind of interesting that we actually created our own data set for were the saucers in the sky, the UFO map, oh, cool. and, and the Bigfoot map. <laughs> and so those are two things that are very Washington. And they're private organizations that track the information that is really all phoned in by people living in Washington. So the National UFO Reporting Center ah. has a 
hotline that you can call That's and great. and report your sighting. And so they've <laughs> taken all of those accounts and digitized them on their website. And so you can go through and read all these stories that are really interesting. And then they have other data like what did the UFO look like? Was it a X? Was it a fireball? You know? <laughs> and so that was a data set that was just text. And I went through and basically put it into Excel and made it into a graphic. Oh, fantastic. Yeah. So after creating that, are you convinced that we've been visited by UFOs? Well, the UFO. <laughs> I feel like you're, you're almost an expert at this point. <laughs> <laughs> the UFO sightings weren't as convincing as the Bigfoot sightings. I'll just say that. Interesting. Yeah. I spent a lot of time reading Bigfoot sighting reports and I was convinced. <laughs> I mean, people are, they are not joking when they talk about the things that they experience out in the woods. It's, it's pretty incredible. And just so detailed that you can't really believe that someone would make it up. Um, in some ways, the, in the they UFOs... They weren't possibly chemically assisted? <laughs> no. Oh, interesting. No. Interesting. I mean, I would suggest I would suggest just going to the website and reading some of these accounts. I was thinking it would be one that's good for the scratch and sniff version, too. Isn't there a whole section on the Bigfoot smells? smells? Yes. Really? Yeah. It's one of the graphics that is in there. And I was just like, oh, man, I didn't... I mean, I grew up hearing about Bigfoot stories, yeah. but I missed about the smell. Well, there was that thing about, was it the Indian Army recently found a bunch of... Oh, yeah. That was in the news. Supposedly they Yeti, supposedly Yeti reported and they like they made casts of them and everything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was just a couple weeks ago. Yeah. Huh. Where they're claiming they're Yeti tracks. Or the Indian Army is just super bored. They're bored. <laughs> and they're just like, what if we made Yeti tracks, guys? Yeah. Well, that's what everybody thinks about is the tracks, mm -hmm. but it's actually the sounds of Bigfoot that people report the most often. And there's a little diagram that we made in here about the words that people use the most to describe Bigfoot. And the sounds are high-pitched screams, loud knocking, deep moans, mm -hmm. guttural growls. Wow. Yeah. yeah. This is all stuff that you would not forget. Yeah, true. In the middle of the also woods. a walk through Pioneer Square. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so... <laughs> That's really funny. I got way too into that one. <laughs> so after having completed this, which I can't imagine, do you see and experience the city differently? I think so. Yeah. You know, having a little bit more history about the different places make them seem much more rich. I definitely notice certain buildings more. Hmm, like what? Well... Sorry to keep referencing this No, book. please reference the book. And that's okay. I mean, that's just one more reason for if you're listening, go out and pick yourself up a copy of Seattleist. Go to Elliott Bay and pick yourself a cup of copy if you're in Seattle. And if you're not, Amazon's got it too. <laughs> Thanks for that plug. Of course. <laughs> <laughs> Our vast sea of listeners, yes. I'm sure, will snap into action. <laughs> so we have a map called Raising Seattle, and it's all about the building boom in Seattle. And so one of the graphics we made is a 3D model of downtown that color coordinates the era that all the buildings were built in. And so you can see at a glance how old and kind of what era things were built. Mm -hmm. And up at the top, there's some different tidbits of information about the different buildings. And I love this one and I always think about it when I go downtown. Victor Steinbrook said of the Columbia Tower that it's probably the most obscene erection of ego edifice on the Pacific coast. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, said by a true Seattleite. <laughs> yeah. And I love that. That's fantastic. And I think it's those little things. It's like these crazy characters that we learned about in Seattle that just give every little place and everything one more dimension. So mm -hmm. that's really what I took out of it. This is something that I'm personally fascinated with. 
We're living in this age that we have access to all of this. Like even 10, 15 years ago, I wonder if you'd still be able to get access to all of this data. It's just so easy to get now. And we were just talking about this before the show. Mm -hmm. 10 or 20 years from now, I wonder if they're going to look back at the age we're in now almost as if it's cute. Like, well, they were just discovering all this data and like they haven't started to use it these ways. What do you think the effects are going to be far and wide of people doing projects like these? Yeah, I mean, when you say data, I guess that could mean a lot of different things Mm -hmm. because I'm thinking about the different data that we have in here. Like some of it is numbers. Some of it is statistics that you can track over time. Some of it really is just stories about people and quotes. And maybe that all existed at one time, just in a different form. Like we'd have to go to the library and search through books and we'd have to basically find somebody who was an expert in finding things Mm -hmm. to get all that stuff. Right. And now me as a novice can just go on the Internet and access all those things. And so I think that's the big difference. I mean, it's so hard to tell what the future holds, but... In some ways, I think it's a little bit sad that that gatekeeper is gone, you know, Interesting. because I'm a huge proponent of using experts. I think that Hmm. people spend their lives getting to know a subject. And even if you think you can do it yourself, you'll learn a lot when you engage an expert. And I think the same is true of information. So in some ways, we've just unleashed a bunch of toddlers on some like (laughs) kryptonite, you know, and you can see that with all the terrible stuff of Facebook. And I don't know, in some ways, I'm a little bit worried. I would hope that it would mean that we're in an age of the creation of more experts than ever. But, you know, I totally agree, though, that there is a little bit of just like, I've seen three YouTube videos on this. I am an expert. And then you go and do a thing. (laughs) Yeah. I'm thinking about this story about this guy in New York who did scaffoldings for Broadway shows. And he had no training in it. And he just started doing it. And he was doing it wrong. And they were failing. He did it for like... 20 years and then somebody asked him to do something that was really 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 challenging and he didn't know and he started to reach out he was like oh man i really need like the scaffolding expert of new york and everyone gave him his name (laughs) and he didn't know that it was him because he had spent all this time doing it he was the person other people would reference Hmm. and that there's being a novice and figuring it all out yourself as long as you understand you're not an expert can be a great thing i would say maybe for better or for worse you might be an expert right now on what makes a Seattleite a Seattleite. Oh, stop. <laughs> but you've gone through the process of taking in all this information and distilling it out and deciding, sure, with a specific filter, but what information was important and what deserved to be creatively interpreted. And you have gone out and marketed that to people like those are qualifications. That's a thing. Well, I'm leaving Seattle now because <laughs> I've done that. So. <laughs> You're bored bored of your expertise already. Well, no, I I have to say after that comment that there were a lot of people that worked on this book with us and we definitely didn't do it ourselves. It definitely took a village. Mm -hmm. I want to give shout outs to some people. Please. So my husband, Andy Donovan, did a lot of the research and some of the writing for us. My co-author, Jenny's sister, Melissa Hampton, did a lot of writing as well. My former colleague, Matt Wood, he is a horticulturalist and he wrote and conceptualized the bitter Seattle, which is a bunch of native plants that you can use as bitters, which is really awesome. I love that section. And we found all the actual plants dried at the university herbatorium. I don't know if I'm saying that right. And went and photographed them. So (laughs) that was a really awesome contribution from him. 
Donnie Donahue did a bunch of awesome illustrations for us that I think are really hilarious and unique. And Chris Adams did the gray anatomy graphic, or he did the coding for that one. And there were a lot of other people that helped us with ideas and things. So, you know, it was really great to be able to pick the brains of all these really smart people that we know. That's so cool. Was there something you encountered that really surprised you about the city or about the investigation? That was a question that I answered a lot. <laughs> and you're like, no, not really. It's, I'm like, cool. I can't remember. Pretty much what you expect. <laughs> Mostly cloudy. Yeah, totally. <laughs> Little bit of sun. No, it's not sunny. Yeah. That's funny that, that that's the cover. The cover of this book, which is really hard to describe over radio, it's these very thin vertical bands of color that show gray for cloudy and blue for clear. Well, it's specifically the color of the sky, right? Yes. So, yes. I mean, it's not just gray plus blue plus right. white. It's an actual photograph, What I enjoyed right? the metaphor of the book in general is that that's the thing that people talk about the most, yet it describes nearly nothing about Seattle. <laughs> like, absolutely nothing. Yeah. But uh, would you say that the cover of this book is more blue? Blue or more gray? I would say it's more blue. Yeah. But that's because I'm an optimist. <laughs> <laughs> and I've only lived here for three years. I think if I if I lived here for 15 years and or was a pessimist, I'd be like, ah, it's all gray. Mm -hmm. Even those blues aren't really, you know, what would you say looking at it? Well, it depends on who I'm trying to, <laughs> who I'm speaking to, right? Because, uh -huh. I mean, the classic Seattle, I think, to say would be like, oh, yeah, it's definitely, definitely gray. Mm -hmm. Just so that not too many people move here. <laughs> right. <laughs> the whole thing about like, oh, yeah, it's terrible. It's all a lie. Yeah, it's definitely really gloomy all the time. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Well, that's the amazing thing about data is that yeah. when you look at the data, it's mostly gray. But when you look at the graphic, it's the blue that stands out. Yes. And ah, that's the same with see? memory. You're totally <laughs> right. I had done this to settle an argument a year or two ago. I looked up rainfall in the U.S. Mm -hmm. and darkness in the U.S. And we're like top half of darkest, rainiest cities, but not even close to the top. It's perception. Mm -hmm. It's all perception. It's this total encompassing experience. It's the experience of being, of feeling wet more. That's the funny thing about data here. If you look at the data of just rainy, cloudy weather, it doesn't match up with the feeling mm -mm. at all. Well, it's also cultural. It's no joke that Seattleites will say that it's rainier than it is just to keep their little insulated city. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like you're taught that as a kid. I'll just tell everyone it's awful <laughs> weather here. <laughs> By the way, that's another map that we didn't get around to is we wanted to somehow do like a comic or something about what the Seattle freeze is. <laughs> <laughs> and that's something I've had a hard time describing. Yeah. People yeah. don't really understand because... Yeah, in fact, I was so I was just in Chicago visiting my dad and they asked me something about like, oh, is the Seattle freeze is that a real thing? And it seems like it's the same answer to everything people ask about Seattle. It's like, yes and no. <laughs> it's like, I guess it depends how you look at it, right? It's like, sure, it is a little bit, but it's really just the different culture. It's a socialization in a different way. It's really not antisocial. It's just different socially. Mm -hmm. People want to make everything binary. Right. Maybe that's one of the best parts of the book is that it shows how not binary it is living here. It isn't just it's this and not that. It's like, well, let's talk about this for a second. And I love that. I love that it's just like Seattle's a complicated thing. Let's talk about how complicated yeah, it is. Yeah. <laughs> I always think of in the Czech Republic, they tell you when you go there that don't be offended if people aren't friendly to you in stores or on the street, because it's the kind of place where you only show your emotion once you go inside someone's house. And that's when all the warmth comes out. Mm -hmm. And I kind of feel like that is the case in Seattle where, yeah, you're walking down the street and people aren't just waving to you and stopping you to talk about how cute your dog is. But once you get to know people, they are very warm and 
I think people have very tight knit relationships here. Would you agree, Rachel? Since you're there, you're an actual raised <laughs> actual. Seattleite in the room. Yeah, I mean, I guess I didn't even know that the Seattle freeze was a thing until I was an adult. Like I was probably committing it, <laughs> but, I, <laughs> but I didn't know I was doing it. You know, like I, I needed outsiders to tell me that it was happening. I've been meaning to mention the list of freeze infractions I've yeah. been collecting yeah. on you. Yeah. <laughs> you have the data. Yeah, I do. I have this infographic I created. Yeah. <laughs> well, in Iowa, for example, when you drive down the street, every single car will wave to the other car. Not to say, oh, thanks for moving over for me, but just hello. It's the human. Yeah. I see Hi. you. Yeah. <laughs> And so I was more used to that kind of behavior. So coming here, not only did I didn't get a wave, I didn't get any eye contact. I thought, oh, my gosh, is it me? Is it my clothes? Is it my hair? Do I stand out as being this like weird person? But no, it wasn't me. It was them. <laughs> it's funny coming from the East Coast. I found this to be more socially interactive in a way, in oh, really? some ways, in some ways than other places. In that the focus is very intense when you are interacting. Mm -hmm. Socially out in bars, sure, it's very, very different. And you can't just go and meet people randomly. Mm -hmm. But people make commitments when they make connections with people. Which, from the East Coast, it's just like, nope, you could spend six hours with a person you randomly met on a Friday night and then never see that person again. Yeah. Here, if some random person makes a connection with you for six hours in Seattle, that's a serious commitment. Yeah. That's just like, that's special, which is kind of interesting and kind of neat. Mm -hmm. From here on, we talked a little bit in the beginning about you could do another one of these. Would you do another one? Are you planning on doing another one? Well, it's a really great way to get to know a city. I mean, in some ways, I wish that I had done this book when I first moved here. Mm -hmm. But, you know, from now on, I feel like I want to do this everywhere I move. <laughs> so going back to my hometown after not having lived there for 20 years, it feels like maybe doing something like this, even if it wasn't published, but just kind of doing it for myself might be a really good way to re-engage with the city. That would be really fascinating to do for your hometown. Yeah. Especially having been gone for a while. Right. So you can kind of compare what, as an adolescent, what ideas I had about mm -hmm. it compared to yeah. what's really happening there. It was interesting, your portrait analogy from earlier, the sort of snapshot in time, and to see another one that shows the change yeah. for some of them in the statistics that are still evolving. This could probably be done every 10 years, and it would still be totally unique and really interesting. There are probably some maps too that would be fun to just do the same map over and over and see how it changes. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. yeah. One that I really like at the end shows where people move from who are coming to Seattle. Oh, interesting. Yeah. And so obviously the date stops when the data stops, which I think is 2015. But, you know, in 20 years, what's that going to look like? Right now, yeah. everybody's coming from California. They're coming from big cities like Chicago, New York. But a lot more people are coming from Texas, Florida, Arizona. Interesting. And when you look at when they first started collecting data, which was in, I think, the 1850s, it was all from the East Coast, obviously. Sure. And I think Maine was the number one state that people came from. <laughs> ah, interesting. Yeah. Some of upstate New York and Maine is very Pacific Northwest. Ah, uh, yeah. Not necessarily culturally, mm -hmm. but geographically and weather-wise, mm -hmm. it's pretty much the same. The Adirondacks aren't as dramatic as the Cascades, but the scale is similar and it's similarly inhospitable outside of cities and that's interesting. Yeah. That's really interesting. So, I mean, stuff like that is always fun to see how things change. And mm -hmm. there's a lot of little things in the book like that. What did you learn for yourself 
how do you feel different after doing it? Or just, I'm, I'm the same, it's cool. <laughs> yeah, pretty you much can't like, change me. I'm tired. <laughs> That's just, that was a lot of work. Yeah, I definitely felt that way. Um, was this the first book you've ever worked on? It is. And I think that was really one of the biggest changes is I've always wanted to do something that felt like a big accomplishment that was very tangible. And a book is totally that, you know, it's something that you can show your mom and say, look, mom, I really did something. I didn't just make a landscape. <laughs> <laughs> it's so funny. We had a we had a guest on Michael Ellsworth, who's a graphic designer here at Civilization, and they won a very prestigious award. And he called his parents, and they were like, "That's nice, honey." <laughs> and he was just like, "This is literally." And they were just like, "Whatever, great. Yes, yeah. cool. Are you coming for the holidays or not?" <laughs> we actually said this last show. If you are a success in life, you can never get revenge on your parents. It's impossible. <laughs> so uh, I, I'm sorry. It's just never gonna happen. For you. <laughs> Being able to complete a project like this, not knowing anything about the publishing industry, never having done something to this scale, it feels really good to know how much work goes into it. And that's something that I think gave me some confidence in trying other things. So I'm oh, going to cool. try to start my own business. Fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about that. Well, it's a little bit up in the air right now, but I want to do landscape design in the Midwest and do something that's focused on sustainability and doing some restoration work prairie restoration that's something that I think is really important in states that have lost a lot of their native habitat. Mm. And I think that could be important in Seattle, although there's so much national park land and preserved land here that it's a little bit different. So that's the idea. It also is probably going to be some sort of artistic endeavor and try new things and try to create, you know, my own style. It's something that I think a lot of designers want to do is to develop and understand their own style and their own ideas and that's kind of scary so well i think you're gonna do great based Thanks. on based <laughs> on what i see here yeah well this was a lot of fun thank you very much for coming and sitting with us thank this you. Was fantastic thank you check out seattleness at your local bookstore if you're in seattle my favorite is elliot bay books and it's fantastic it's one of my favorite books about seattle ever made also, check out Design Goggles podcast on Instagram and Design Goggles on Facebook and Twitter. Also, check out our blog at boardandvellum.com. There's always super cool stuff being posted there. And as always, please stop on by Board and Vellum in Seattle anytime for a chat with us. We would love to have you. Thank you again, and we will see you all in a few weeks. Bye.